Let me ask you to take your Bibles and join us again in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We are considering this summer a series we're simply calling the Twelve. We're considering the Twelve Disciples or Apostles that Jesus called to follow Him. And uh, today we come to the sixth of those Twelve. By now, uh, you've become familiar with my format. I am spending a few minutes thinking about what we know about each of these men. And that will become increasingly more challenging because when we get to the last three, we know their names. And that is it. And you're asking, how are you going to preach on that? Well, that's August, so I'll tell you in August. So that'll be interesting. I'm, I'm going to I'm fascinated to figure out how I'm going to do it as well. So we're thankful for the opportunity to consider. You may be asking, are you going to cover, cover Judas? The answer is yes, I am. Because I think it is very important for us to understand what happened to that man and why he was an unbeliever from the beginning. So we will consider these. Today we come to, as you see there in your bulletin, a man whose name is Nathaniel. Nathaniel. So we're going to read this passage in John 1, 43 and following. We read it a week ago as regards Philip. But Nathaniel and Philip are friends. And so every time you hear of Philip virtually, you hear of Nathaniel, not totally, but virtually. So we'll read this passage again. Verse 43, John 1. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. King James supplies the word guile there. Behold the man in whom there is no guile. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So this is John's introduction to this man called Nathaniel. Nathaniel. Now, uh, let's spend a minute thinking about what we know about Nathaniel. I've mentioned many times in the six names we've considered thus far that there are four lists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts. John supplies no list 
of all 12 of the disciples. He mentions many of them, not all of them, but he mentions many of them in his gospel, but he does not have a list from A to, or 1 to 12, if you will. But these others do. There are four lists. On those lists, the name Nathaniel is never found. But the name Bartholomew is found. So you might ask, well, who's Nathaniel and who's Bartholomew? And the answer is the same guy. So you say, well, what's the difference in the names? Well, Nathaniel is a first name. Bartholomew is a last name. That's the easiest way to describe it. So you'll note that uh, amongst the 12, his name is given as Bartholomew in the four lists. You might ask the question, why is his last name used, whereas the, the other 11 are all just given their first name? The answer to that is known only to God, so we should not speculate. But apparently, he is known by Bartholomew. But perhaps he has a very close relationship with John, and so in his gospel, he prefers to call him by his first name, Nathaniel. We don't know specifically, but Nathaniel and Bartholomew are clearly the same man. He is, as we see here in uh, verse 45, he is a friend to Philip. Who does Philip go and find when he finds Christ? The answer is Nathaniel. He goes and enlists Nathaniel. So he's a friend of Nathaniel. Interesting that um, amongst the four lists, Philip's name is always fifth in all four lists. Nathaniel's name, which is Bartholomew in those four lists, is always sixth in three of the four lists. He actually flip-flops with Thomas. Uh, we know him as Doubting Thomas, or Thomas the Twin is the way the Scripture describes him. Uh, he, he is, he is uh, interposed with Thomas's name in the book of Acts. But he's always sixth in the list, except when he's not. <laughs> one way to say it. And he's only not one time. We also know that he is from Cana. Turn back, if you will, to John 21. John 21. We can make a couple of assumptions from this passage. Jesus has resurrected by this time, John 21. And the disciples are contending with uh, these sightings of Jesus post-resurrection. John 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So if you will note a couple of things. Number one, it, John is clear that Nathaniel is from Cana. Our familiarity with Cana in the Bible is very, very sparse. 
except John includes Cana as the first of Jesus' miracles, the turning of water into wine occurs in John chapter 2 and is the first recorded miracle of Jesus in John's gospel. So Cana is important. We shall come back to that momentarily. And he is perhaps also a fisherman. Uh, It's important to note that uh, the first four disciples that we mentioned, Peter, Andrew, James, John, are all expressly identified as fishermen. Philip is not identified as a fisherman, though he is probably, if you'll look at verse 2 here in John 21, two others of his disciples are unnamed. It is assumed that one of those is John, because John never identifies himself by name. The only John mentioned in John's gospel is John the Baptist. John speaks of himself in this way, if you will, uh, third person. Two others of his disciples, it is assumed that the other unnamed disciple is Philip. So if that's the case, then the fifth disciple, whom we looked at a week ago, is Philip, and he probably is also a fisherman. What are these men doing? They're going fishing. And how are they fishing? They're fishing with the commercial fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, John. Perhaps they themselves also are commercial fishermen. We don't know expressly that truth. Uh, Note that they not only went fishing, they fished all night. That's not the behavior of a recreational fisherman. Some of you would say, well, I'm a recreational fisherman and I've fished all night many times. Okay, you're the exception, you're the outlier. But in the case of the first century, the people who fish all night are not recreating. They're trying to make a living. And so these men are doing this because this is their nature. Jesus has been crucified, buried. Now his tomb is empty. They uh, are looking for him. And in the midst of that, uh, they decide to go fishing. They revert back, as it were. The Holy Spirit has not fallen on them at Pentecost. What are they doing? Well, they're not preaching every day like they will do after Acts chapter 2. In this interval between the resurrection and Pentecost, they're reverting back. Uh, Peter is dealing with his, if you will, uh, stress or loneliness or confusion in the way that he typically would do that. He falls back to things that he's familiar with. He goes fishing, and he invites these other guys to go with him, and they do, and Nathaniel is one of them. So he perhaps also is a fisherman. What is interesting to note then We have considered six of the 12, and it is definite that four of the 12 are fishermen, and it is probable, in my judgment, that both Philip and Nathaniel are fishermen. So if you believe my point of view, and I'm not building a house on this foundation, by the way, but if you believe my point of view, we've considered six of the 12, and they're all fishermen. You might assume, well, then the the, the other 12, the other six are going to be fishermen, to which I would say... I doubt it. We know that several of them are not. Uh, We don't know about Thomas yet. We'll cover him next week. But I would suggest to you that this man is probably a fisherman. Go back, if you will, to John chapter 1. We'll note a couple of other things quickly, and then we'll try to make application of these things to our lives. We know that Nathaniel is a student of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. I made this same point a week ago as regards Philip, and I can make it here as well. You'll note 
the terminology that's used here, it's not unimportant, and it should be uh, familiar to you as well. It should not be unfamiliar. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Now, who is the one that he's referring to? Clearly, he's referring to Messiah. He's referring to the Christ. Now, why would Philip know about the Christ? The answer has to be that he's a student. He studied the Old Testament. He knows the Bible. He knows that there is prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that predicts the coming of the Messiah. Philip is anticipating the return or the coming, the first coming, <coughs> the first coming of the Messiah. And he goes and he gets Nathaniel and he uses Messiah language. Now, maybe, maybe you don't understand this, but I would su suggest to you that if, if you have relationships with people who are not involved with the Bible, not involved with a local church, not Christian people, you would be very wise to not use Christian language. Your affections for the things of the Bible and the things of the, uh, the, the stories, if you will, for Bible truth and so forth are not going to find traction in the hearts of people who have no affinity for those things. You can talk about Zion all you want because you know what Zion is. But are you talking to people who don't know the Bible, don't have any reference to that kind of thing? Zion is a political term that has reference to the arrogance of Israelis against Arabs. It has nothing to do with the biblical language or the biblical understanding, which, by the way, has nothing to do with Jewish arrogance against Arabs. That's, so that word Zion has been co-opted in political speak. Be careful using language that doesn't communicate with anybody. Well, it communicates with folks who are on the inside, but you're, you're talking to somebody who's on the outside. They don't know your language. So what do we know about Philip and Nathaniel? They're friends. He goes and gets him. And secondly, he uses insider language. Then Philip himself actually uses insider language. Notice down in, uh, later in this very paragraph, uh, verse 49. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That is messianic language. He is clearly a student of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. He uses this language, the language of Messiah. Now, you might read it and say, well, I don't quite understand it that way. I mean, he's using terms that everybody seems to use. Well, the answer to that is, of course, they do, because they're students of the same thing. Uh, I'll show you this language specifically in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, chapter 2. Uh, in our recent study of the book of Psalms, you'll note that uh, this is uh, probably my second favorite psalm, Psalm 2, for reasons that, again, are about to become obvious. Um, I'm actually working on a book. I've written zero words. But this is the subject of my book. Psalm 2. So in order for you to really appreciate my book, you need to read Psalm 2. You need to love it. Because if you don't, 
you've got a real problem with my book, for which I've written zero words, but it's coming. I want to read Psalm 2, and I want you to look for the language that Nathaniel uses. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, their summary is, let us break free from God. Who needs God? Verse 4, God responds. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What is God's response to the insurrection of the peoples of the earth? What is God's response to the unbelief of the nations? I will send my king, and he will be enthroned on Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. On my holy hill, the temple mount, I will send my king, and he will come to Jerusalem. In fact, he does. These disciples that are not yet disciples, but are being called as we are studying them, they know that the Messiah must come to Jerusalem. And the reason they know that is because Psalm 2 says so. He continues, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. God is going to send the king of Israel, and it's going to be his son. His son is coming. The son of God is coming. This is the language of Messiah. So the Messiah is coming, and he's going to be the son of God. I want you to go back to John chapter 1. And Philip says, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. If you're a student of messianic prophecy, you don't have a category called the son of Joseph. So Nathaniel is skeptical of that claim because he's a student of messianic prophecy. He makes the case, in his own mind at least, that this cannot be. Because I have been taught, I have heard preached, I have heard people talk in my own family, perhaps, people that I respect, that he is going to be the son of God, not the son of Joseph. Do you have a category called virgin birth? Well, you wouldn't until you do. 
But the notion that the world has a category called virgin birth is pretty preposterous. You see, that's the problem with Christians. Your story goes something like this. God is love. But he hates your sin. And he's going to send his son to the earth. And his son is going to be born in a woman's womb with no husband. Have I lost you yet? And beyond that, he's going to grow up in some little backwoods town. I thought about it this week. What town could I compare this to? And I realized that it doesn't matter what town I compare it to, I'm going to offend somebody. Because there are people here, or if not here, they're on the live stream, who are going to say, you know, the preacher was really getting down on this town. But there are a couple of towns around that probably got a few hundred people. At the time of Jesus' ministry, there probably were no more than 200 families in Nazareth. Nazareth was located on kind of a minor crossroads, so 200 families is not a big place, not, not absolutely a micro dot, but it's, it's not a big place. Pick a number. There's 500 people, 600 people. You think of any town. And somebody comes along and they said, hey, we have met the Messiah, and he's from... Really? I thought he'd be from someplace like Clinton, at least. They got a Baptist college. If not Clinton, then, you know, Oxford or Starkville, Hattiesburg. Not there, then. You know, political center like Jackson. Who knows? You know, people have all kinds of ideas. And the reality is, you Christians, you have this story, and you're telling me that the Messiah is from some little micro dot town in the middle of nowhere. He's also from Nazareth. Now, again, I would not expect you to know the geography of Israel, but Cana and Nazareth are very near each other. Cana is not at a crossroads at all. To get to Cana, you sort of have to take a right and go to the end of the road. Cana is not a big place. But if you're from there, you don't like people impugning your town, right? We get that. So Nazareth is a town of similar structure to Cana, very near, probably had a bit of a competitive rivalry. If they had football back then, they might have been football rivals. Susan and I came from a small town. We had a little football rivalry with a town five miles away. Uh, nothing good could come out of that town. By the way, my mother came out of that town, the last of the good things that ever came out of that town. Uh, but nonetheless, we, we understand these little town rivalries. Here's a man from Cana, Nathaniel. He hears that the Messiah is the son of Joseph, and he's from Nazareth. Hello? Impossible to believe that. So his reaction is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He should have come out of Clinton. 
He should be somebody. He should have come from some family that has significance. He's the son of God. He should be born to royalty. Instead, he's the son of Joseph? You talking about the carpenter? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. But he's a student of these Old Testament prophecies because he knows that he has to be the king of the Jews and he has to be the son of God. We know that because he uses that language. His response, Jesus addresses in verse 47, he saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile, no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Before Philip called you and you were under the fig tree, I saw you, to which he responds with the language of Psalm 2. You're the king of Israel. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah. That's Messiah language. So he's a student of the Bible. The notion that these six fishermen that we've already dealt with are not Bible students is not biblical. These men are Bible students. For all we know, every one of them are former disciples of John the Baptist. We know at least two of them are. All of them have an interest in the things of God and the things of Messiah. This is the way people, for the most part, are one to faith. They don't start at zero and immediately jump to ten. We, we must nurture their faith. We must develop their faith. We must have conversations. We must present Christ and present Christ typically. God can do whatever he wants, but typically it is a, a progression. And that's what's happening here. This man is becoming a disciple even when he doesn't even know there is a thing called disciples because God is growing him and training him. Nathaniel is a student of the Old Testament, and we should be the same. We should not be unfamiliar with the Bible claims about Messiah. There's one last thing, quickly. And that is that he is a man of genuine faith. Jesus uses his terminology, verse 47, Behold a true Israelite, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile or deceit. He is a man of authentic faith. Now that will become more obvious as we consider the two implications of Nathaniel's faith for our lives this morning. He is a man of true faith. Jesus describes him as a man in whom there is no guile. Interesting, this word guile, I'm guessing that virtually none of us used that word this week. In fact, I would guess that there are people in this room who never use the word guile in a sentence, except reading perhaps this passage. That's fine, by the way. This particular word guile means deception, means deceit. It actually comes from a word whose meaning is to fish with bait. Isn't that the way people fish? They dangle bait, and then they hook the fish, and it's all over for the fish. How do you get a fish? You bait him. You deceive him. So what does Jesus say of Nathaniel? Behold, a true Israelite, a man in whom there is no deception... He's true. Now, the implications of that perhaps are many in your, your mind. In my mind, that I, I would suggest he's a, he's a man who's truly seeking. He's interested in the things of God. And he's pursuing God in his own way, perhaps ignorantly, perhaps with 
some lack of knowledge, but, but he's pursuing God. It is suggested that when Jesus saw him the day before under the fig tree, people have speculated, what was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? Well, a fig, you remember that the culture is such that the sun is ever-present. There's a lot of sunshine in the Middle East. And under a tree in full leaf, this time of year would have been the case, uh, he would have found shade. What do a, what a men do under a shade tree? Well, any number of things. They rest. They uh, drink a little lemonade. Who knows? Uh, and they pray. Place to be alone. Place to get away from perhaps the hubbub of, of a house or a job. It's a place where he could be with his own thoughts. Maybe Jesus saw him because, in fact, in his own way, Nathaniel was actually seeking to communicate with God, and the Son of God knew that. Who knows? All speculation. But we do know that Jesus describes him as a true Israelite. Maybe you would like to hear when you get to heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. If you don't want to hear that, then come talk to me. Surely you do. You want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. When you finish your course, you want to hear that. I would tell you this is a similar evaluation. It would be just fine with me if I heard, well done, a true Israelite. A true Israelite. This is Jesus' way of affirming Nathaniel. So we know that he's a man of authentic faith. Perhaps young faith, perhaps immature faith, but authentic nonetheless. So I want us to make two applications for our lives out of the life of Nathaniel. Try to do this as quickly as possible. And the first I want you to note is that Jesus affirms this true faith. And we should aspire to similar faith for our own lives. You'll notice we said in verse 47 that Jesus describes him as an Israelite indeed, a true Israelite. There is no guile, there's no deceit, there is no deception. What do we mean by this, a true faith? Well, let me show you a contrast, if you will, in Romans chapter 2. I invite you to turn there quickly. Romans chapter 2. And the Apostle Paul is talking in Romans 2 to those people who have uh, suggested that they're good with God on the basis of their own innate goodness. I'm good with God because I do good things. By the way, if that's your logic, why, why, if somebody said, why are you going to heaven? And your answer is, because I've tried to be good, you're not going to heaven. Because try as you might, you've failed. And until you have an antidote for the judgment that you've just brought upon yourself for failing to be good, then you don't have any hope of eternal life. So that's part of the argument. In fact, that's the substance of the entire book of Romans. Why are you not going to heaven because you're trying to be good? So Romans chapter 2, he's identifying the kinds of people who think they're good. 
And so there's a paragraph here that's going to deal with circumcision. Now, circumcision is a way the Jewish people would appeal to their goodness. How do you know you're good? Well, my boys have all been circumcised. The law said they should be circumcised. We keep the law. We're law keepers. My boys are circumcised. End of story. We're good. We're good. God and I are good. Really? What does God say about that? I I hear what you say about that. What does God say about that? Here's what God says about you relying on the circumcision of your boys or you for salvation. Verse 25, Romans 2. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. The very thing that you thought was going to help you actually condemns you. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That too is a hypothetical. Then verse 27, he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision, but break the law. For, here's the money verse, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is his circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, or to use the language of John 1, Jesus dealing with Nathanael, a true Israelite, a Jew, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. It has nothing to do with the physical act of circumcision. Get that straight, friends, please, today. It has nothing to do with that. Instead, he looks at the heart. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. Who are you inside? Jesus affirms the true faith of Nathanael, not because Nathanael has submitted to circumcision, which surely he had. He didn't have any choice. His parents would have required that on the eighth day, according to the law. But he is not a true Israelite because of keeping circumcision rituals, but he is a true Israelite because of his own heart. That's how we know or can make a judgment about uh, Jesus' reaction to Nathaniel or Nathaniel's even affinity for God or the things of God, because he is affirmed as one who has a true faith. What does that mean for you and me? It means that we should pay attention to the exact criteria. What's good for Nathaniel is good for me. What's good for me is good for you. What's good for you is good for me. God looks at us and he looks at our heart. He looks at what's going on inside of us right now. I would ask you, what does God see? He's seeing bitterness, unforgiveness, rancor, anger, malice. Is he seeing adultery, lust? Is he seeing worldliness? Is he seeing the lust of the flesh in your life? Or is he seeing a true Israelite, a true Jew, a true follower of God, one who's 
loves the Son of God and lives for the Son of God and is broken before the Son of God when he himself has not measured up to the ways of God? Does he see someone who is contrite over their sinfulness and they cry out to God for mercy and for forgiveness? We don't know what Nathaniel is doing under the fig tree. But it's not unreasonable for a man whose heart is seeking to be pure before God that he's actually confessing his sins under the fig tree. He's worshiping, he's praising, he's celebrating Christ or God or the work of the coming Messiah, looking forward to the coming Messiah. And on and on we could go. Is that true in your life? Or have you become so anchored in the world, so earthbound that you have little regard for the return of Christ, little regard for the rule of Christ. Nathaniel's life and Jesus' evaluation of Nathaniel's life should be a poke in the eyes for every one of us to wake up and to recognize that God is serious with his people and that he takes note of his people and he knows our lives. And whatever facade you're wearing today, whatever mask you're wearing today, Whatever Teflon you think is going to keep everybody else from getting into your business, understand this, God sees your heart. He knows what's going on. He knows the true you, the true me. We're not hiding anything from God. So I want to suggest to you that we should all aspire to have those words said of us. Here's a true Israelite, a true follower of Christ. Not because of some outward ritual, but because of the matter of the heart. He has come to embrace Christ. He's come to follow him. And he gets up and he goes and he follows him. This is what we learn from Nathaniel. And this is what we learn for ourselves. If God evaluates Nathaniel that way, he certainly is evaluating me the same way. There's a second thing quickly. And that is that Nathaniel learned the value of common things and common people. Common things and common people. You're going to have to stay with me on this one because I want you to see how prevalent this is, if you will, how important I think this is. I have mentioned that Nathaniel in verse 49 uses the language of Psalm 2. You're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. That is messianic talk and you, he's acknowledging that Jesus is the, Messi the Messiah. Now in the preceding verse He's asked rhetorically, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So I would say this to you. The Son of God and the King of the Jews does not equal Nazareth. It can't equal Nazareth for a man from Cana. Because he has, if you will, a worldly evaluation. You say, well, I, I thought... Nathaniel was this great guy. You just said Nathaniel was this great guy, and that means that Nathaniel didn't have real issues and real problems. No, I didn't say that. Nathaniel clearly has at least one problem. He doesn't like Nazareth. And that's a problem. 
You see, we could talk about anybody in this room, and we could talk about their virtues, because everybody in this room's got virtues. We could talk about, well, he, you know, he's this and he's that, she's this, she's that. They're like this, they're like that. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, that's great. It's the kind of people we want to hang out with. Well, what are their problems? Well, we don't want to talk about those. But the reality is we've got a long list of problems too, right? In fact, as beautiful as our assets are, the same could be said as to how ugly our liabilities are personally. We're unkind, we're irritable, angry, bitter, unforgiving. We, we could just go on and on and on and on and on. And we, we could include the word prejudice. There's a racial prejudice, and then there's a cultural prejudice. He's clearly not prejudiced against people from Nazareth because they are a different race. They're all Jews. That's not the point. But they're from that little backwoods holler. They're from Nowheresville. They're from Nazareth. And people where, from where I'm from, they don't like people from Nazareth. We've been coached that way. That's our worldly water that we grew up in. My dad believed that. My granddad believed that, et cetera, et cetera. You go on to all kinds of rationale as to why people believe or don't believe what they do or don't believe. But we can stumble over these kinds of things. But Nathaniel learned the value of common things and common people. He was tempted to stumble over his earthly prejudice or his earthly pettiness or his earthly disrespect or his worldly evaluation. Well, I heard him speak. He's not very impressive. I saw him. He doesn't look like much. We evaluate people according to worldly criteria all the time. To our shame, by the way. That is sin. When people get a raise and we don't evaluate them. Well, who's he compared to me? He doesn't. They don't appreciate me. On and on. We go on with all these listing of comparison, comparison, comparison. That's why the 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not pay attention to your neighbor's stuff. Thou shalt not pay attention to your neighbor's financial gain or your financial ability or your financial progress. Thou shalt not pay attention. To quote Jesus to Peter as Peter asked him, what are, you, what are your plans for John? Jesus' response to Peter's question about John was, what is that to you? My plans for John are none of your business. Because God had a plan for John that didn't look anything like his plan for Peter. God's plan for me is not God's plan for you. And God's plan for you is not God's plan for me. And the notion that somehow God has this obligation to provide us or treat us or use us in all the same way is completely unbiblical. Nathaniel is going to be one of the twelve. And God has no intention of using Nathaniel in the same way. 
that he uses the rest of them. Any more than we could assemble 12 people for a purpose and we would expect all of them to do the same thing. I hearken back to the serve video we saw. Brother Turner asked us to come and help. Some folks had to push a broom. Some folks had to push a shovel. Some folks had to bend over and pick up trash. Some people had to take that trash out to the street. And there was one man, Jimmy Thomas, who didn't do anything. He said bush hog because the grass was belt high. Okay. Takes a lot of people to get a lot of things done. That's what God's doing. He's getting a lot of things done. But our temptation is to stumble over earthly things, to stumble over earthly credentials or earthly criteria or earthly perceptions. They don't have to be right, but our temptation is to say, well, if I was God, I wouldn't use him, or if I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. I want you to think about the people that you want to share Christ with. You're telling them this story about virgin born, raised from the dead. You're, you're telling this story about the Savior standing at the right hand of the Father, praying for you. You're talking about the Savior standing at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the go-ahead to return, to come and gather his church. You can tell all these biblical truths, and you tell them to people who don't know anything about them, and they react negatively. And they say, who is this man again? Well, he's Jesus. He's from, he's from a little town in Israel called Nazareth. Really? Never heard of it. Nazareth. Is that a real thing? Is that a real place? You see, if all you do is evaluate things on a worldly basis, you don't see God. You just see the world. You don't see glory. You just... You just see the flesh. You don't see praise, wisdom, power. You don't see the kindness of God. All you see is foolishness. Because God has used the foolishness of the world to confound the wisdom of the world so that those who have eyes to see can see the wisdom of God. <coughs> You're telling me that this man from Nazareth grew up and he got himself killed and you want me to follow him? I'd rather follow somebody who wins. I'd rather follow somebody who's successful, who's accomplished, who did something, accomplished something, changed something. And this news of Jesus, Jesus appears to be pretty common. So what? He's a teacher. He got himself martyred. I could give you a list of thousands and thousands of such people. Who is Jesus? Why is Jesus? But what Nathaniel learned was the value of common things, common people. I consider that as I reflect on God's plan for our church. And God's plan for our church means God's plan for you, since you are the church. What does God intend to do? I don't know specifically, but I know what God's probably not going to do. He's not going to bring in some superstar. He's not going to bring in some influential VIP. He's not going to bring in some celebrity. Instead, he's stuck with us. 
Uh-oh. He's stuck with us. Yeah. Guess what? He's not scared. He's not intimidated. He's not overwhelmed. He's not disappointed. He's been working on us for years. Just so we would have a future. We would be a part of the future. That we would bring to bear the cause of God, the cause of Christ. We would bear the good news day after day and week after week and month after month until we can't do it anymore. And we're going to pass the baton to the folks behind us because God intends to do things with folks just like us. Weak people, common people, people from nowhere. People the world will never respect, never appreciate, never value, never write up in some story in some special way. Instead, God is going to use common people doing common things, loving people in Jesus' name. You know how prestigious it is today, this afternoon, if you go to somebody's house and you pressure wash their driveway? You know how prestigious that is? Not very. If you take your neighbor's hand tomorrow in the midst of all this rain and you say, I want you to relax because I'm going to mow your grass. That's not very spectacular. But the plan of God and the gospel of Christ walks on shoes that look like yours and mine. And it transfers from one life to another, not on the basis of some celebrity. Who is this Nathaniel guy? Who is this Philip guy? Who is this James and John guy? And, and we're going to pick up some, some real shady characters before we're done. We're going to pick up this Matthew tax collector dude. And then we're going to pick up this guy named Simon the Zealot. Oh, yeah, yeah. I really like our chances. If you're putting a team together, this is not the way to draft them. And yet, Nathaniel learned the value of common things and common people. I made a statement in week one, we talked about Peter, that one of the things you note about these disciples is they are extraordinarily ordinary. Extraordinarily ordinary. That's our church. That's every church. You say, well, I know some folks that really got a lot of bells and whistles. Okay. God needs a couple of those, I suppose, and he's got them. But the rest of us are stuck with ordinary. And we're just ordinary. And that's good. That's great. Because that's exactly what God did when he called the first 12. He got a bunch of fishermen. Fishermen. We're not talking about... MIT education here. We, we, we're not talking about a lot of money. We're not talking about a lot of power, a lot of influence. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about 12 guys who are extraordinarily common. Regular men who gave their lives to Christ. And folks, they changed the world. We need to get over ourselves and we need to get over our neighbors as if somehow God is dependent upon earthly things to accomplish his will. He is not. He never has been. He sent his own son to a woman 
who was basically a young teenager who had no credibility. She was not even married. He sends her to Egypt for a couple of years until the king dies. And then he brings her back and to a little backwoods town called Nazareth. And her husband is a carpenter. This is not the stuff of legend. And then when he gets his opportunity to call his team together, the first six guys are commercial fishermen. We need to get over ourselves. Like we got to have some high-placed people to do high-placed things. No, we don't. We just need a God who's in charge of every bit of that. That's all we need. So I don't know where you are in your life today, but you need to rejoice that the God of gods, the Son of God, and the King of kings knows your name. And all you have to do to engage him in your life is to call his name. So we say together, Jesus, we are your people. And we need you to come and help us today. Because without you, we are undone. Without you, we're going to accomplish nothing. Let us look to him right now. Pray with me. As we pray, I want to invite you to consider your own relationship with Christ. Maybe you're here today and you've never put your trust in Christ. Why not now? Maybe you've never had a serious conversation with Jesus. Why not now? Maybe you've had many serious conversations, but it's time for another one. Why not now? Heavenly Father, our prayer, our prayer is for you to help us. Our prayer is for you to bless us. Our prayer is for you, Father, to remind us that we don't need, we don't need worldly acclaim, we don't need worldly power, we don't need worldly influence. We just need God. The disciples had God, and they changed the world. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you sent your son to be Messiah. He came in the most mysterious, even strange of ways, and yet he came. He came to a place called Nazareth. The world didn't respect it. Even Nathaniel didn't respect it. And yet... He came to understand what we must understand. That where we come from is not a determinant of whether God loves us. Our skin color, our financial status, our intellect, our influence. Those are the way the world keeps score. But as for God and his people, true Israelites in whom there is no deceit, no deception. We see with the eyes that God has given us by his spirit. And we don't see those things. We only see you. Strength, power, love.
grace. Give us grace to obey you, to go in Jesus' name. For we thank you and praise you. Amen.